Hey everybody, this is episode 141 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas with my man James Dodds here on the show who has recently been on to talk about coaches and what you might look for in a coach, but we also recently went through goals and why people don't get their goals in that two-part episode. James is a rogue coach who's now been on the show five or six times. So welcome back, James. Thank you. Glad to be back. Excited to have you on. And I brought you on because I wanted to talk about my trip to Europe and all that that entails because I think there's some takeaways for the audience that I think will be powerful, but also I like to think they'd also just like to know how the trip went. And so it's going to be a little bit of a different episode as we just go through that. And you're here just to make it interesting because me talking about that by myself to no one in particular would it wouldn't have been very fun. So you're going to be my foil in the discussion. And I'm excited about that because you often take me to places I wouldn't go on my own, which is going to be fun. But I wanted to go through this for a lot of reasons. One, because of our running elements, obviously that's true because everybody knows that I went to the Monaco Diamond League meet, which we'll, we'll not go through in detail, but we'll talk a little bit about my reactions from that. Also, I did a race when I was there, which we'll talk about, a trail race in the French Alps, which was really cool. And, But I'm going to throw in some bonus content on U.S. women's soccer because I just have to talk about it because that was cool. Got to go to the World Cup. And we'll get to a few other things, but just thought it would be interesting to go through that with the audience and I think people might get to know me a little bit too along the way talking about some of the personal elements of the trip as well before we get there though I have to set a little bit of context for the trip in that it started uh, a bit on a sad note for me in, in on an unexpected way you know, this this is a trip I've been planning for a year I bought the tickets actually to the World Cup semis in the final last summer and it's something that I knew I wanted to do as a big soccer fan and wanted to take my kids to. And so we planned the family trip basically in its in its in its outline form last summer. Put all the details together behind that in March and April of this year. But the week before, because of an event in my life, the trip actually was put in jeopardy in that we thought we might not be able to attend or might have to postpone part of it. And sadly, a friend of mine died the Wednesday before we left. A friend of my close friend of mine, friend that's been a friend for 21 years, I believe, since I was 19 years old, and is somebody who we've we've lived apart for for different stages, but had recently in the last couple of years moved to Austin, and so we'd gotten to to be friends here in person in Austin, which was cool, and. Sadly, he had been dealing with an autoimmune issue for the last year or so and lost his battle with that the Wednesday before we left. And he he was 42 years old. His wife and three kids are dear family friends of ours. He's got three kids or had three kids, 13, 11, and 8 so a young family, you know, only a couple years older than me, which puts things in perspective. I was actually, Amy and I, my wife and I were with his wife when he died. Uh, he had been 
gradually deteriorating with this autoimmune issue and then eventually was put on palliative care comfort care to try to make those last moments as peaceful as possible for him and so it had been a while since he'd been alert in those final days and and but we were there when he took his last breath to support his wife and also his brother and his brother's wife who were there as well that happened on Wednesday night and obviously with an impending funeral the trip was was in jeopardy and also just processing all the emotion of that it's a really sad really sad story and obviously one that hits me really hard losing a close friend but I I just wanted to talk about it because it impacted I think my perspective on the trip which we'll talk a little bit about later and it also because he was just a great guy and I've lost two friends too young one at the age of 24 got hit by a drunk diver and died, died instantly in a car accident his name was Nick, and then my friend Javad, who just died at 42 of this autoimmune issue. Both of them are the two most generous friends I've ever had. The type of people that would drop anything to help you, that would spend their last dime to support you if you needed it, that would take whatever time you needed when you needed it to be there for you if you had something going on and it's hard to process people like that going too soon but the only way I can make sense of it is that me you know as a human and others as humans who see people like that go too early that we somehow take a little bit of what they were like and try to carry it forward and so for me if somebody were to hear this story and be a little bit more giving a little more generous in their life because life is short hearing about my friend then that would help me make sense of what happened there and so that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about it his story is also just really fascinating he grew up in Iran and moved to the U.S. at an early age after his dad was executed by the government there because his dad was a dissident, a political dissident who went against the 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 powers that be in Iran, the theocracy in Iran. And so he was executed. His family moved to the U.S. His brother, Javad, his brother, and his mom made it out. Came here with nothing, didn't speak the language, and had to figure it out. And so Javad went from that as somebody who always just worked really hard, was a self-made human here in the U.S., really lived what we call the American dream and that, you know, he struggled a little bit in school, but initially, but kind of figured it out, went to the University of Houston, got a degree in information management, ultimately worked at an oil company doing basically tech for them at the very bottom of their organ, their tech organization worked hard, worked his way up, eventually made a few different leaps in his career and, and eventually became a, a VP and then a COO of a startup here in Austin, all really from nothing. And he did it with just humility, generosity, with an attitude that you would admire along the way. And and it was the same guy. wasn't changed by his success in his career. 
was a great family man, took great care of his wife and kids. And so it was just sad to see him go in so many ways. And it's something I'm still processing to this day, especially as we try to help his wife and kids process. And so I went into the trip with that immediately happening. We wanted to postpone the trip. The funeral was the following Wednesday, but it, but it was going to be prohibitively expensive to basically change all of our tickets to leave after. And so my wife ended up staying. She and his wife are best friends. I took the kids with me to Europe by myself for the first four days. And and we kicked things off with the U.S. winning in e- against England in the semifinals. So all of this, this experience for me was a, a real interesting case of contrast of coming off this really tragic situation and then going into this really epic trip with epic experiences that were also bringing a lot of highs. So with that as context, I brought a lot of emotion into it and a lot of introspection into the trip that I just wanted to share, but I also just want to tell a little bit about his story. So hopefully maybe I can impact somebody else with, with the type of person that he was. I'll stop there. Yeah. Um, no, first, I'm sorry. Um, I have met him uh, once or twice uh, with you and Amy, um, and I know uh, that he me- meant a lot to you guys. Um, and during times like this, I know you're still processing. That's something you mentioned, and I think even sharing this is a bit of the processing. It's part of the metabolization um, of it all, but I'm just curious if I think shifts will sometimes happen in us when we go through experiences like this. and. Uh, if there's not anything immediate right now, I uh, totally get that. But I'm just curious if there is any kind of shift that you're kind of chewing on as far as like the way, whether it's the way you look at the world, the way you look at running, the way you look at time with family, um, time spent with friends, et cetera. I'm, I'm curious if there is any kind of shift that's occurring that you're able I, to talk I wouldn't, about. I wouldn't say that there are massive shifts, but I will say there may be subtle ones. And you know, when my friend died at 24, got hit by a drunk driver, that was shocking but it didn't really it didn't really put me face to face with my own mortality because it was a it was an accident it was a freak accident and I was 24 I still felt like I was invincible in a sense even though this crazy thing happened to my friend but to see a cohort and close friend die at 42 when I just turned 40 myself actually while I was in Europe which is already a birthday that kind of makes you think, right? And I don't feel old by any stretch, but it is clicking into the fours. Naturally makes you introspective of, you know, you know, where am I in life? Am I where I want to be? Is there anything to reevaluate? All those questions kind of pop up. You start to feel age maybe a little bit, even though I still feel, feel young. You know, I do feel like, Things like recovery and other things are starting to to change for me as I enter my 40s. I still believe I have my fastest races still out there, but it's because I'll be training smarter, not harder. And so there's a natural introspection that happens at that time. But I think this paired with the death of a close friend who was 42 put me face to face with my own mortality in a way that I've never experienced. And, And I... And I will say I'm still processing what that means for me, but it makes me even more realize that life is short, that for any of us, it could happen quickly. I mean, last August, 
I mean, he was a picture of health. And fast forward 10 months later and he's not here anymore. And so that can happen to any of us in a lot of different ways, you know. And so so I'm still processing what that means and how that impacts how I live. But that is definitely front and center in terms of the things I've been thinking about as I think through it. Yeah. Well, again, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, on a much lighter note, you mentioned you also got on the plane and had the kids alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three kids. <laughs> what kind of experience and, was and, that? And for those that don't know, I have a 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and 6-year-old. This is their first time going to Europe, first time on a long flight. You know, we've flown to Canada with them. And so we've done four-hour stretches with them on a plane, but never eight-hour stretches like what you might get from Atlanta. Different kind of marathon here. A little different. So I was definitely worried and doing that solo brought some question marks. But I will say, honestly, and my kids get full credit, they were amazing on really all the flights, both to and from. In some ways, I think it was easier with just me with them because they 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 realized that I was at a disadvantage and therefore had to kind of step it up a little bit. You know, they were they were lenient towards me, given my state. And I think if it had been two of us with them, it might have actually been a little harder. But the fact that they were taking showing mercy and my oldest, who's 10, you know, I gave him a speech beforehand. I said, you know what, you need to help me kind of need to be the, the second parent here and help the other two. And so I think they kind of were on their best behavior for because of the situation. And they managed it great. Plus, you got to give the assist to the old Delta in-flight entertainment, you know, with all the <laughs> options now. Or it's touchscreen and you can basically watch, you know, a library of Disney movies if you want to. That seemed to occupy them very, very well. And they, you know, I think got a little bit of sleep, too, on the overnight. And they're small, so they can they can kind of get comfortable in coach on an overnight flight versus me that was struggling a little bit more. But, you know, I probably got three and a half hours of sleep on the flight over. I think Elena, who's our youngest, probably about the same. Finley seemed to get maybe two and a half. And then Kylan, who's my middle eight-year-old, I think he stayed awake the whole time watching <laughs> movies. And I don't know what happened while I was sleeping, but he seemed to be okay when we woke up. So it ended up being fine. And then we got to Paris. We flew into Paris and had to navigate from there to Lyon where the games were. And they were great. They were great. It was it was much smoother than you might expect. And I, I don't think that's attributable to, attributable to my parenting. I give them full credit for being on their best behavior. Love it. So that takes us to the first thing I wanted to talk about, which is the U.S. Women's World Cup victory. It was an amazing experience. And I'm a soccer fan, so I'm into it. But I was excited to see other people get into it. And I think there's so much to learn from watching it. And I hope that others are already inspired. And I feel like it was something that everybody was kind of paying attention to, especially because of some of the, you know, the political tentacles that everything took on with Rapino and Trump going at it on Twitter and things like that. So I feel like everybody was paying attention. I know in Austin, everybody was definitely paying attention as Austin was the the market in the U.S. that had the most actually television watching, which was really cool to see. But I think across the country, it was 
something people were paying attention to. Were you paying attention to it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, on one hand, I, I was even going to say, like, it made me proud to be an American. Yeah. And of course, you know, generally speaking, I'm always proud to be an American. But uh, to have that, like, emotional lift uh, was huge. And it's something you only get, like, during the Olympics, you know. I'm almost thinking the, the, the closest it made me feel was the way I felt when uh, uh, Michael Phelps, you know, got eight medals. It, it was kind of to that caliber where you're just like pumped up and proud. And I know they, they, they've been a dominant team um, in years past, but it just was it was just fun. And our office contributed to those numbers. Um, you know, the games were at random times here. So we'd pull up the big screens and have them on. And we're working on our laptops, looking over the top, trying to like make sure we didn't miss a goal or, That's you know, awesome. so it was pretty exciting, you know, here in Austin. That is awesome to hear. And I feel like that was true based on what I'm hearing in other places as well. The experience watching them there was amazing. And by the way, it wasn't as expensive as you might think. I, because I bought my tickets early and I bought a package that included all the games in Lyon, which were the semis, the two semis and the final. I mean, we paid about 50 euro a person total for all three games. So just over, what, 16, 17 euro per game per person, which is just crazy to me. And it, we'll talk about later how that's obvious that FIFA's leaving money on the table for the Women's World Cup, but. But it just wasn't as expensive as you might think to go watch these games. And then the experience itself was just unbelievable. The U.S. fans travel very, very well. And so from what I understand, I didn't go obviously to any of the, the group games or the quarterfinal. The only game where the U.S. fans weren't the dominant group was the France game in Paris, which was obviously dominated by the local French crowd. Other than that, every game was like a home game, and that was absolutely true in the games that we saw we saw the semifinal against england where i would estimate the crowd at being 80 percent american favors and 20 percent british wow. or england so that's pretty 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 interesting especially since you know it's a probably a couple train rides to leon from from london and and then the final the dutch fans had a solid showing and so they were a little bit more but maybe it was like 70 U.S., 30% Dutch in the, in the stadium. And so dominant U.S. fan presence, even though it was overseas, which is just so cool to see. And so you had quite a bit of USA, USA-style chants going on throughout the games. The energy was just palpable. I and mean, whenever they would score, something big would happen. You know, you're sitting in a section with mostly fans, so we would all be high-fiving each other, making fast friends with the other U.S. fans in the section. So to see it in person with that kind of energy was just so, so cool. And it just goes to show you where the sport is in the U.S. Not quite where it needs to be, I think, in other places. To me, it's ridiculous that the English fans and the Dutch fans couldn't get better representation being just, you know, like I said, a couple train rides away or a drive away. But cool that the U.S. showed up, showed up in spades from a fan base perspective. And then you even had in the final, you had the Dutch, the Dutch fans had a big contingent in their orange on to our left in, in at the end line where the goal was. And then the U S fan club for U S soccer called the American outlaws. They were on the opposite goal. And so they would go back and forth with different chants. And most of the time the stadium 
we would win because the U.S. fan base <laughs> would get involved and then we would drown out the poor Dutch, the poor Dutch chance. But you got to give them props. They also had a solid showing. And from what I understand, outside of the French fans, the Dutch fans were were the best beyond the Americans, from what I understand from others who were there throughout the tournament. But it was just really, really cool to see a U.S. team with that kind of support there in person. The other thing to be that's cool about this as a soccer fan is that, yeah, you mentioned U.S. is dominant. They've now won four out of the eight World Cups, including the last two. They won in 2015. But for those that haven't followed since 2015, there's a couple of things that make this win particularly special, which you may have picked up on, which is one, that the world has gotten better, especially the European teams. I mean, they had seven teams in the in the quarterfinals and then the U.S. So teams like the Netherlands have come on strong recently. Germany's always been there. France were this, probably the second team in the tournament that people thought could win it all. England, all of those teams have just gotten better and are now rivaling the U.S. in ways that they haven't in the past. But secondly, the U.S. as a part of that realized after 2015 that they had to remake their team in order to win again. And so full credit to this coaching staff, Jill Allison company, because they basically, not only because they had older players move along, but also because tactically the way they played in 2015, which was more defensive style, wasn't going to do it. Wasn't going to do it for this World Cup with these European teams that have really aggressive attacking styles, basically Jill Ellis realized we have to be not only better overall and cultivate younger players as we have some move on and retire, but also we have to change our tactics to play a different game than we have in the past in order to still be on top, which included bringing more speed and athleticism on, you know, on the defensive side, but especially on your outside backs, but also upgrading the creativity of the players in the midfield and on the wings. But of course, you know, having those veterans mixed in as well, who'd had the experience. And so they basically remade their team, remade the way they play tactically, and then still pulled it off, which if you'd asked some experts two years ago, when they were kind of struggling through some of those shifts and losing games to England and France that they wouldn't have typically lost because they were making those transitions some people would have said they're not going to be your favorite going into the World Cup because we don't know how those are going to play out. But by the time we got to the World Cup, everybody knew they'd kind of worked it out and they were still the favorite going in, but they were going to have to play a style that they hadn't played in 2015 with a mix of players that they hadn't played with in 2015. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that they would just repeat. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I'm not surprised that uh, you know it's like strategy that comes to mind right away because we call you the course whisperer around rogue so i know that's kind of how your brain works but i also heard a theme of like just recreation and i guess you know makes me think about like um being able to develop and and uh and find chemistry on a team when you're recreating it so i know that's a big angle but i also want to i want to hear from you um a little bit more you you even said earlier about um kind of like the political tension between uh, Rapino and, and Trump. Um, but you know, I, I was also thinking just, you know, working in tech, having a lot of colleagues who talk about like, uh, women rising up and having equal rights within, um, you know, equal pay, uh, in, in the workforce. Uh, I, I feel like there's an element and spirit of that going on here. Cause it's like, 
you're setting records for television views as we watch the women's team. And while, yes, I went out and tried to watch the men's team a couple years ago, there's just a spirit in this game that I think is elevated. Um, so I'm curious if you have more in there about, about that one. Oh, man, where do I start? There's so much to talk about on the equal pay and really not just equal pay, but also equal opportunity side for the women's game that just has a long way to go. And that's the, to me, one of the most inspiring things about this team is that they were carrying a lot of weight, not just the weight of being defending champions and wanting to repeat and carrying the burden of being the best in the world and having to deliver on that. All of that's the normal performance-oriented pressure that teams have to deal with at, at the top. But this team is also carrying the weight, really, of the sport. You know, the U.S. women's soccer world is the most developed in the world. And the U.S. women's team, they're leading the world to inspire other countries to do some of the same things that our team has done and to elevate the women's game in other places. So they're carrying the burden of the sport as well, not just as the best, but also as ambassadors. But then there's the whole equal pay side of it, and they're fighting for that obviously here in the U.S., but the rest of the world actually has a lot further to go in terms of actually investing in the women's game as well as paying the women. You know, There are a lot of countries, Jamaica being one of them, where the national the National Soccer Federation doesn't really invest in the women's game. Jamaica was in the World Cup for the first time this this year. But their team was supported by basically a benefactor, a rich individual from Jamaica who had decided to invest in the team, and that was carrying it. The same thing was true in Thailand. That Thailand team was actually supported by a wealthy Thai businesswoman who has decided to take the team on her back and invest in it. And so that's happening in a lot of places where the government or the powers that be aren't investing in the sport the way they're investing in the U.S. And yet even in the U.S., it's still not where it should be in terms of parity. You know, to give some numbers, the World Cup prize pool for the teams, you know, as based on how things are divided up to the winners and the different levels of performance for the men's game last year was 13 times more money went to the men's World Cup prize pool than the women's World Cup prize pool. You know, pay differences are, even in the U.S., sometimes as much as 10x between the men and the women. And yet, in the U.S., the women are World Cup champions. <laughs> and the men, they didn't even qualify this time around. So... A lot of issues there. Now, the common argument that you will hear people talk about is, well, the women's game doesn't make as much money, as much revenue, so naturally the women shouldn't be, be paid as much. And I've had a lot of rational people come to me and say that argument, which at the very surface level, if you're talking about market economics and I'm a capitalist, I understand that concept but it doesn't work at all in this situation for a lot of different reasons there's a lot of issues with that debate or that side of the debate and this is where I can go on a little bit of a rant but first of all women were banned from playing soccer in most countries until the 70s 
the Women's World Cup didn't start. There wasn't the first Women's World Cup until 1991. The Men's World Cup started in the 20s. So, and by the way, the reason that we didn't have a Women's World Cup until the ni- until 91 is because of men. The powers that be decided that women shouldn't play because it wasn't healthy for their bodies. So you have in the women's game, you have now close to 30 years of development of a sport versus the men's game, you have 100 plus years of development of a sport at the World Cup level. So the women's game naturally isn't as developed there because it hasn't had as long to develop, not because of anything women did, but because men, the powers that be, were the gatekeepers controlling access. So that's not fair to punish women now because of misogyny in the sport 30 years ago. So that's one issue. The second issue you see is that FIFA and really the powers that be even in U.S. soccer aren't even trying to monetize the women's game the way they are the men's game. So they're not marketing it. They're not really trying to make money with it the way they should be. Just one small example. You know, I bought tickets to the semis and the final, paid 50-ish euro per person for all three games. That's absurd. You know, personally, I would have paid, I don't know, 4X that maybe. So they were leaving money on the table with ticket prices. If you went to the stadium, they had a couple of merchandise tents selling merchandise outside the stadium there were lines wrapped around the stadium to try to get the little stock that they had so they weren't trying to actually sell gear to monetize even the world cup as it was with 50,000 people there at a game in the u.s i tried to get jerseys for my family which i was able to do eventually but it was like it was like a treasure hunt. Like I was trying to find the Holy Grail, trying to get me in a men's size, a women's national team authentic jersey with a player's name on the back. It was almost impossible to do. I was able to do it because I was committed, but the casual fan wasn't able to do that. And yet the women's jersey here in the U.S. was the number one selling Nike team jersey so far in this year, even though they didn't have the stock they probably could have if they'd really done it right. So there are just so many ways that men, the powers that be, aren't trying to monetize the women's game. And so when they sit there and they say, oh, well, it's not making as much money, it's like, well, that's because they're not even really trying. So we don't even really know what the true comparison is in terms of revenue. If the women's game had the same runway that men's game has had in terms of sport development of sport, if the powers that be were trying to market it in the right ways, So we don't really even know. Not to mention the fact that in the U.S., if you look at the last three years of revenue for U.S. soccer, the men's team and the women's team are basically making the same amount of money. The women made $50 million over the last three years. The men made $49 million over the last three years. So in the U.S., it's already to a point of revenue parity. Now, some people would argue, well, if the men had made the the World Cup, then that would be different. And yes, the, the men's side would have been greater had they made the World Cup, but they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. And the women won. So, you know, so I, to me, that argument falls like it actually plays into the argument. It's like, well, 
The women are just that much better. So yeah, you can't throw that in my face either. So here, there's no reason why, if you look at it from a revenue standpoint, the women shouldn't be making as much money. And then you layer on that the argument, you know, I just saw a press release that the scooter company Bird, you know, that, that makes these, you know, pay-per-play scooters was valued at like some ridiculous billion dollar valuation not because it's making a lot of money necessarily yet but because it has the potential to and so yes that's what we do in things that are small but yet have big opportunity we invest because at some point it's gonna be worth it and you pay the executives that are running bird well because you know that they're the ones that can make it happen that can make probably the, largely these male investors in, in venture capital companies in the valley make a lot of money because they're investing in, a, in an opportunity that might be small now but will pay off down the road it's the same if i could invest in the women's game i would and yeah it may be smaller even if all things were equal it may be smaller from a revenue standpoint but that doesn't mean the employees that are making it happen the the opportunity isn't worth investing in because half the world is women and they're going to be a force to be reckoned with when they have the opportunities to make the women's game all that it can be and it's on the way for sure and in my opinion it's already better than the the men's game if we're comparing i prefer to watch a women's world cup game versus a men's for a lot of reasons but that you know but that's really beside the point because that's my personal preference it's all going to be there and that argument falls flat in my opinion even though that's what commonly you hear yeah so um you know i know what we hope but i'm curious if you think that this is any way a, a tipping point or is it we're just feeling the excitement this summer um i'm curious moving to more of a predictive you know space. in the us i think it could be um, you know, the U.S. women have been fighting. I mean, that's the thing. They have a lawsuit. You know, they they sued the Federation U.S. Soccer to try to get equal pay. They've since, right as the lead-up to the World Cup happened, they decided to go to mediation with the Federation to try to renegotiate how they're paid. All that's overhanging their performance as well, which makes it more important. But I think, I do think in the U.S., this could be a tipping point it may not get them to full parity as they deserve but i do think it will get them a long way especially now that you know the nwsl which is the u.s women's national women's soccer league which is the best league in the world has the best players including the u.s players it got an espn deal tv deal coming out of the basically hype of the world cup if you watch some of the aftermath all those stadiums now, the NWSL stadiums, because they're midseason, have been selling out since the World Cup. So there's been a lot more more energy in the National Women's League here. So I do think it, and especially with you know Rapino getting the attention she got and making the statement she made, I think it is maybe a tipping point in the U.S. The rest of the world has a long way to go, and there's some countries that are still where the U.S. was in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of developing the sport. So there's a long way to go. And if you looked at, you know, the Italian team was one team that kind of had a breakout 
tournament. Nobody expected them to make it out of the group stages. They ended up making the quarterfinal. Have an up and have an up and coming team that largely hasn't been invested in by the Italian soccer federation because the men's game is dominant there. Some of the women on that team spoke out against their treatment and the fact that they don't have equality in their country as a part of the tournament, similar to how the U.S. players have done. They have another tournament coming up. Apparently those players have been benched, the ones that spoke out, because they were making waves. And so I think in other countries, there's still a long way to go. And, you know, it might be another 20 years in some places in a place like Italy that has largely been a male-dominant soccer culture. So I think we need more World Cups like this where other countries can see the jumps that the U.S. is starting to see. But even the U.S., you might still be 20 years until those players actually get paid what they're worth, which is absurd, but it's it's true. Yeah, I mean, more World Cups like this, but then to your previous point, um, us getting it right... Uh, back home first because then that creates the example uh, that others can point to and then if other countries start putting up wins like that and becoming dominant like the U.S. has but if we're we're the dominant team um, playing this well and we still don't get it right on the financial side it's going to be hard to expect that others follow suit because there's no suit to follow yet yeah well and and you take it more broadly you know women are still fighting for equal pay in business at the executive level and and so the U.S. still has a long way to go in general in terms of gender equity. And I think it'll take even longer for that to translate to soccer, unfortunately. But it's going to take, honestly, men who are listening to change their mentality. Stop listening to the bullshit argument about, oh, well, it doesn't make as much revenue as the men's game. So, of course, they shouldn't get paid as much. That's a bullshit argument that is easy to talk yourself into and feel like you're somehow right. And for all the reasons I just mentioned, it's not it's it's not the right argument. Men need to be advocates for equal pay, not just in soccer but in, but everywhere. And until men get off their bullshit high horses about equal revenue and whatever else, it's it's unfortunately not going to change because that's the way the balance of power works in our world, sadly. So I'm here to hopefully use my voice to to change a few perceptions and obviously in a much bigger way, those women hopefully change a lot of perceptions with the statements they made themselves. And that to me is the biggest inspiration I take from watching them play is you had all this pressure on them, the performance pressure we mentioned, the political pressure with, you know, back and forth with Trump and the statements that they're making in terms of social equality but then also gender and and financial equality all that stuff is riding on them and admits you know changing their tactics changing their team and still having to perform and yet they showed up faced all of that pressure and still just got it done yeah you know and it just makes me think about me standing on a starting line trying to get a pr in a marathon with really no pressure, right? Compared to that, you know, compared to that kind of pressure, it's like I face zero pressure. You know, yeah, I may face a little bit of pressure that's self-made and self-created, 
but it's not real pressure like they're facing in so many different ways that it's magnified times a million versus what I face on a starting line. So it kind of made me just want to take that mentality that I saw with them, which was not just a serious approach. You know, I saw an interview with one of the players after the World Cup and and she just talked about how, you know, their preparation gave them confidence. It's like, yeah, they had a lot of pressure, but they just focused on their preparation and they wanted to be the best prepared and the best trained and the fittest. And so that sort of helped them navigate the pressure. So I just want to take that mentality, which was serious, but also yet loose. You know, you w- you'd watch them when we were in the stadium and the pregame warmups and yeah, they're taking it seriously and they have their routines and they're following those things, but they're also kind of joking with each other. Rapino would would play to the crowd a little bit, you know, look up at the crowd, kind of get people into it during warmups. And so you could tell they're also having fun and not taking themselves too seriously as at the same time that they were also very serious about what they were trying to do. And so trying to take that mentality captured a little bit in my own world. And when I line up with, you know, a millionth of the pressure on a starting line, just trying to, to carry that with me is, is one of the things that I take. It's like, it's just, what I'm doing is just not that big a deal compared to what they're doing. So if they can face it and just stare the pressure in the eyes and, and still crush it, then I can do it too. Yeah. I like that. You know, speaking of um, playing to the crowd a little bit, I, I loved when Alex Morgan scored against England and then ran to the side and did the whole sip the tea yeah, or even maybe it was tea. a play on that's the tea with, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Sophie Turner. Um, what were, I mean, what were your, like, there were so many like great shots moments along the way, but being there, what what were a couple of your favorite? Well, I will say that we didn't see that celebration or at least it was hard to see it. So I didn't know about the celebration and all the controversy till after, because in the moment you're just a goal happens. Everybody's going crazy. We're high-fiving each other. We're not paying attention to the, to the celebration. So it wasn't until after that I saw that the, I think, the most dramatic moment was the penalty kick save against England in the second half when we got that VAR review and then the penalty kick was awarded and it was two to one. And Alyssa Nair, who's the goalkeeper, who was really honestly the biggest question mark for the team coming into the tournament. A lot of people had questions about whether she could handle it. You know, she had big, big shoes to fill with Hope Solo, you know, being the best goalkeeper ever you know, previously and, and no longer playing for the U.S. team. And so so you had the biggest question mark of the tournament facing the biggest moment of the tournament. And, the ner- you know, the nerves of the crowd, not only during the VAR review, it started to build. Are they going to give the PA? Are they not? But then when they, whenever they start lining everybody up for that, that PK and then she saves it and, you know, people, there's just massive, like, exhale in the stadium. And, of course, people went crazy. That was probably the coolest in-game moment and quite a relief, you know, as well. The The coolest moment beyond that, I think, was after the final happened, we were waiting for them to get ready for the trophy ceremony and they were assembling a stage on the field. Everybody stayed, even the Dutch fans stayed in their seats waiting for the trophy presentation. And spontaneously, out of nowhere, the crowd in unison, everybody in that stadium, 55,000 strong, started chanting equal pay, 
equal pay, equal pay. So you could like it was loud. It was crystal clear. You know, I couldn't tell in the moment whether you could hear it or, you know, whether it was everywhere because, you, you know, it sounded like it was all around me, but I didn't know if it you know carried everywhere. And later I saw on Twitter several people had taken videos from different places, including field level, where you could just hear it crystal clear even on the field. And so that was a really cool moment just to see everybody get behind that cause in that moment and just do it kind of spontaneously. It wasn't like that was planned in any way. So that was a really cool moment. But yeah, so much, so cool. And I would highly encourage you, to everybody, to get into women's soccer. NWSL is now playing. You can watch it on ESPN, too. And also, anytime the U.S. national team plays, to me, it's worth watching. They've got a couple of friendlies coming up against Portugal, which will be a sort of a victory victory lap in, uh, I think, one game's in Minneapolis, one's in Philadelphia. So... Stay tuned for that. But to me, they're worth watching any time they play, whether it's a World Cup or whether it's a friendly. It's always fun. So there you go. That's probably more about soccer than we'll ever talk about on this show. And <laughs> But I unapologetically talk about it because so, it was so, so cool. Let's go to talk about my trail race. Yeah. So I did a 40K trail race in France in the Alps for my 40th birthday, which happened while I was over there. It was a week before my birthday, but... I'd found this as I'm gearing up for this 50 miler in August. I decided, you know, I need to see if there's a trail race over there and just happened to work out that I found this race, which was July 6th. It happened to be the day before the final, the World Cup final. And it was in the French Alps, which was about two hour drive from Lyon where the, where the, where the soccer games were. So we were able to, we drove actually to Switzerland, stayed there with some friends and then I did the race while we were waiting between the semis and the final, and then we went back to Lyon. But this was pretty intense. It's in the French Alps, it's 25 miles, 40K, 9,000 feet of climbing, 9,000 feet of descent, up to 8,200 feet or so. Basically, you climb some of these little mini, mini peaks in the French Alps and you know, in some pretty technical terrain way out of my element certainly but i knew it'd be a good prep opportunity in terms of not only the elevation change because the race i'm doing squamish has eleven thousand feet of gain but also just in terms of time on my feet and getting used to managing nutrition and hydration for being out that long but the funny thing is it was also one of these races where and the website was in french i don't speak french so i was <laughs> i was doing like google translate <laughs> to try to figure out all the details and you had to have certain supplies with you to take in your pack to go like safety oriented supplies. So you had to have a, like a thermal emergency safety blanket. You had to have a whistle. You had to have three meters of two inch wide tape. You had to have a, a waterproof rain jacket. Basically, if something happened to you out there and you got stuck, you had to be prepared to hunker down for a little bit because you're in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in the French Alps and it's not like it's easy just to walk out of there and so that's kind of intimidating <laughs> you know <laughs> checking in getting your supplies checked as you're getting your packet not to mention of course I was the only American it's mostly French people some Belgian some Swiss but I was the only American in the field the only one that I heard speaking English. Everybody else was mostly speaking French, so that was kind of interesting. 
So it was going to be way out of my element in a lot of ways, but kind of a fun challenge to to do while I was there and, and especially in prep for my for my 50 miler. I would say it went pretty well. Overall, I finished 87th out of 287 people. So, finished in the top third. Not bad for a flatlander. Took me, but it took me seven hours and forty-seven minutes to That's go twenty-five miles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like working yeah. your nine to five there with no minutes. lunch break. <laughs> exactly, and so it was a long day. I had expected it would take me between six and seven hours, looking at the results and kind of figuring out the math on how you know how long it would take certain sections, but it took longer than even that. But you know, I was of course prepared for that eventuality or if that would happen but overall i would say i did pretty well i managed my energy well hydration was solid nutrition was solid the training i had done doing a bunch of hill repeats up and downhill here i felt like prepared my legs for the for the pounding of the up and down and for the or the stress of the up and down so overall it went really well it was just a long and hard day and it gave me a heck of an appreciation for for what some of these mountain runners can do. Yeah. It was nuts. It sounds like the uh like it's a, a Boy Scouts only kind of race, um, <laughs> with all that you had to pack. Did you get all that stuff together? Did you I have did. that going? No, I had it all, yeah. I mean I I was able to squeeze it all into this camelback. Well, it's not a camelback, it's a Nathan pack that I have that has a uh hydration bladder in it as well. So I had a hydration bladder and uh and then all that gear back there so yeah was ready ready to roll but i was i took it super conservatively mainly because it was it was really about finishing enjoying the scenery not killing myself because i've got a bigger race to come but but yeah it was definitely hard there are moments where you're looking up and you see this ridge and this peak and you're thinking there's no way we're going up there (laughs) <laughs> but but then you see this line of people snaking you know up that yeah. way and you're like nope that's where we're going <laughs> and so there's some pretty intimidating moments mostly the uphill were pretty good for me but the downhill were was really really tough the really extreme downhill where you're going 25 to 30 percent grade downhill straight mm-hmm. downhill on rocky terrain that i just i'm not good at it i'm not fearless enough i don't practice it enough I don't even think there are slopes in Austin that are that steep for any for any length of time, so it's hard to even prep for it. And so I would just have to kind of take my time there while people would just fly by me. I mean, most mostly I would pass people on the ups, and then they would just fly by me on the downhills. But I had this Paul Terranova, who's been on our show before, trail ultra guy here in Austin, has won a couple hundred miles recently absolute trail stud and just a stud of a human he sent me out of the blue i didn't even know that he remembered i was doing this race he sent me the day before he sent me this email that was short that was just like good luck tomorrow and he had a quote he said the best way out is always through (laughs) and uh, you know paul he's kind of like that he's kind of like yoda of trail (laughs) world and i felt like that was a yoda moment where i was kind of like this is a random email but I appreciated it, but I didn't really internalize what he was saying with that quote. 
until I got to these moments on the mountains where you're climbing like a 30 degree slope straight up and it's intimidating and you're tired and you're kind of beat up and and that quote would come to mind it's like there's the best way out is always through there's only one way to get through this which is just to attack it you know just to do it same thing on some of the downhills I'm like man this sucks going straight downhill my quads are burning my toes are jammed into the front of my shoes because I'm you know over my toes trying to get it done and that quote would come to mind the best way out is always through you just just got to do it there's no other way yeah Yeah. there's no shortcuts there's no way out you just got to face it and there's no point in being mad about it you know or getting discouraged so that that is one thing that sustained me that's very Paul I feel like that's an evolution of his um you're gonna know it better than I I do but it was it he always would say something to the effect of um like you know the pain of the the run itself isn't as bad as the pain of like skipping your workout or how did he say the pain of discipline is better than the pain of regret. Yes, the pain of regret. That's, yeah, I knew it was a s- succinct way to say it, but that this is like a continued evolution of that. It's like, yeah, you think quitting would be relief, but it's not. You'd have to live with that knowledge, but just getting through it yep. uh, is where the relief comes from. So that kind of became my mantra every time I got a little bit annoyed. And there was one section in particular where in a lot of places you could see where you were going, you know, you were above the tree line, you kind of see, okay, I'm going up there and it looks hard, but at least I can kind of see the path and I know when I'm done with it. But there was one section that was in the tree line where the climbs were as extreme and it was, I don't know, two or three miles just straight up and you couldn't tell how long it was or when it was going to end because you're in the trees and you're kind of snaking through there. And so that part, and again, it, it was kind of the middle of the day and it had gotten pretty warm and humid. And I was just kind of, I went to a dark place for a little bit because I just didn't know. Like, you know, when you don't know when something's done, it's harder. And so that was kind of that moment. Like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Is this two miles? Is it four miles? Is it eight miles straight uphill? Who knows? And, uh, and so that quote kind of sustained me. So I have to thank Paul for it. There are a couple of funny stories that I wanted to share, though, that just kind of show... Or, or give a little flavor for for the race. And I'll also post a video in the show notes that from the race itself that shows some of the terrain. But we got to the first aid station, and they only had three aid stations on the, the 25 miles. So they were, the first two were a little further apart. There was It was like every seven, eight miles, basically, you'd have an aid station. And so in the first five miles were straight uphill. We climbed like 4,500 feet, like out of the gate. So it took a while to get to that first aid station, which... I was prepared for, I knew that was coming. So I had packed extra stuff before that first aid station, but I get to the aid station, which is at the top of this ski lift on the side of the mountain. And they had just ski lifted up a bunch of stuff and, and they were pouring bottle or pouring water out of bottles, like the liter and a half, like big bottles of water. And so I go up and I had a handheld and I had a hydration bladder. My, my hydration bladder was still full, but I needed to refill my handheld. So I walked up, opened it and they had people just pouring water in your bottles and so I walk up to the first table I don't you know extend my bottle and the guy starts talking to me in French I don't know what he's saying but I'm just <laughs> like yes here give me give me what you got because he had clearly water in his bottle that he was passing out and so I was kind of just you know sure give me that right and didn't really think anything of it he starts pouring it into my bottle gets it mostly full and then this guy next to me realized I didn't speak French and he's like in kind of broken English, he's like, gas or no gas? <laughs> and 
And the guy was asking me if I wanted sparkling water or still water, <laughs> which I didn't even think would be a question like, in a trailer. Is this a restaurant? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't even think that'd be a question. And he'd filled my bottle with st- with sparkling water. So I ended up with a 20-ounce handheld full of sparkling water, which I Did wasn't about... that? Yeah, Did I wasn't you? about to dump it out right there. I mean, <laughs> so I, I ended up drinking it. I drank some of it there and, re- and refilled the rest with, with, with still water. But I was definitely burping up sparkling water for like the next <laughs> 90 minutes on the run. So that was kind of funny. Then later, it was about three miles to go. We'd come off this final little climb and we were descending down to back to the finish. And it was that third mile to go was like 900 foot you know, per mile descent. It was really steep. And I had just learned, take your time, let people pass. Don't worry about others. Just focus on you and what's comfortable for you. And so I was just taking my time, doing my thing. And some of these descents, by the way, were crazy. Not only were they steep, but they're rocky and they're like on the edge of a mountain where it's like wrong, one wrong move. It seems like you're you're dead. So I was just being conservative. This guy comes by me and I'm just like moving over, letting him pass. And he starts talking to me in French. And I couldn't really tell what he was saying. I don't speak French, but I could tell he was concerned. And basically what I gathered was he, I was going so slow that he thought something was wrong with me. <laughs> And so I start talking back in English. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm good. You know? And then he starts in broken English trying to communicate. He's like, cramp, cramp in this heavy French accent. And I'm like, no, no cramp. So then he starts trying to give me salt pills and food and water. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. I have all those things. Like I don't need anything. And finally I was in, you know, one of the few French words I know, which is like, allez, allez, go, go. I just like, allez, allez. And I was smiling. Finally, he figured it out and he was like, good luck and took off down the mountain. But it was both funny in that I was going so slow relative to some people on the downhills that he thought something was wrong with me. (laughs) But also, you know, just kind of a cool moment of generosity where he was ready to give me everything he had if I needed it to deal with whatever he thought I might be dealing with. So that was kind of a cool moment. Um, but anyway, really cool experience. I definitely encourage people to, if they're in France, to seek out a trail race in the Alps. It's going to be in- insane, but it's worth doing, a challenge worth going after. And for me, the biggest lesson was, from a training standpoint, was I got to work on my downhill, especially my steeper downhill uh, running. I'm just not not good at it need more practice i don't even know if i'll ever be that great i do think some people are more natural but that's something that in the next three and a half weeks while i'm prepping for squamish i'll be trying to find some steeper slopes to go after yeah yeah i think generally speaking runners um don't realize um like i know you're talking about like the technical side of it the skill of it and i think i have it naturally so i just kind of uh, you know, blaze yeah, down. You're way better. Yeah, down trails. Than me, yeah. um, but I've also got like that shorter squattier build. And so I don't know, center of gravity, whatever. But um, uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think a, a lot of runners just generally underestimate the impact even on their body that downhill running can have. Uh, there's a tendency to think that running uphill is like the hard part and downhill is like a freebie, but the, the load on the quads is quite wild. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, honestly, that was that was my biggest concern for this race and for Squamish because Squamish has 11,000 feet of gain, 11,000 feet of descent. I know from experience that my legs have been trashed on downhills before, shorter downhill sections before, 
to the point where I, I lose motor control. You know, you kind of lose neuromuscular control if you don't train for it. Mm-hmm. And so I was super concerned about that for this race, super concerned about it for Squamish. And so I'd just been doing a ton of repeats up and down, you know, slow up, steep slopes, a little faster down here in Austin, including 10 days before this race, I went to Wilkie, which is a short, steep climb. It's only about 200 meters, but it's one of the steeper road climbs in Austin. And I, I would hike up and then run down, hike up, run down. I did that 25 times on a Wednesday. And so I'd done a bunch of that stuff to prepare, prepare and, but I was still worried if I'd done enough. But I did learn that I, I had done enough. I did not lose my legs. My quads were definitely sore, but I didn't lose them. They didn't get completely blown. So that was encouraging that I was doing all the right things, at least for preparing for that pounding. But yeah, you, but it's, but it's a different, it's a, it's truly a different sport in terms of the skill sets you have to work on, the things you have to worry about, who's going to be good at it versus not good at it. And, you know, the downhill part is a piece of it. Figuring out hydration and nutrition is a piece of it. In this race, most people had poles. They were also using that for hiking and, and even for the downhills. I didn't bring them intentionally because I can't use them in Squamish. So I just didn't think it'd be worth practicing something that's not going to help me for the 50 miler. But it's clear that that would have been helpful if I had had them and if I knew how to use them. Because everybody had them and they were using them for sure to kind of get that total body involved on the ups and the downs. So it was kind of like you'd see them kind of like skiing. Mm -hmm. Like you would see some people, you know, using the poles for balance, like you're going down a ski slope. And obviously I think they're using them more on the uphills to create leverage with their upper body to, to, you know, move up the hill versus just using all legs, but they're also using it a little bit for balance on the downhills, which I could see would be super helpful. So yeah, so just a different, completely different sport. And I have great appreciation for those that do races like this. And, you know, I think about like the, like the UTMB, the, the big Mont Blanc, which is the big ultra in Europe right in that area that I was in. And I think we did one section of the course that was like two mile section and it's insane to think that people would do a hundred plus miles through that kind of terrain. I, d- I just, it's impossible to, to fathom really. Yeah. It's wild that it's a sport like ultra running is now its own sport, but you know, I'm curious, uh, behind all of this, uh, I know part of the why you're Mr. King of the why Chris McClung is like, know your why. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. I know p- this in some ways, like part of the why may just be the prep for the, the big 50 miler, but what's, what, what's leading all this? I'm kind of curious. Cause I've always, I know you've done trail. Um, but I typically think of you as like a road marathoner specifically. And what's, what's driving this 50 miler this year? You know, it's a good question. Um, and everybody wants to know, you know, they're like, are you going to be an ultra guy now? <laughs> and the answer is no, I'm still a road marathoner and I'll go back to the roads after this 50 miler. You know, this is for me, my why is more just to mix it up try something new get a season of of doing something different to try to bring you know when i do go back to the roads to to bring you know some freshness and focus back to that you know last year i did two big marathons houston early in the year where i pr'd and then got close to a pr tried to pr again at cim and didn't get it and so it was a very 
intense a couple of cycles and really road focused year. And, you know, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. But, you know, after those couple of marathons, it was like it was time to just do something different, mix it up. And, you know, I wanted to not only get the variety of experience, but also get the variety in training, work on some different things. I knew that I would have to do a bunch more hill work, which I've been doing this summer. And that was intriguing to me just to kind of mix things up from a training perspective. And so really it's just about variety, novelty, finding new challenges, and then hopefully bringing then a fresh kind of fresh new perspective back to the roads with maybe some more skills that I've gained along the way. You know, I think about all this downhill prep I've been doing really would help me for CIM last year because yeah, you're only losing, I think it's 500 feet or, you know, 400, 500 feet at CIM, but I definitely blew my legs out on that downhill terrain at CIM so that at the end I was really struggling. I wonder how that would have been different if I had done this, this kind of prep I'm doing now, um, for ultras before that experience. So anyway, so it's more about the variety and then we'll see, I'm open-minded to somehow getting the bug and wanting to do more, but you know, I'm also a guy who's done a half Ironman who never did an Ironman, you know, so because I was at that time experimenting with something that I just wanted to try. So I think it's most likely that I'll do a 50 and then go back to the roads and maybe never do more than that, but we'll see. Just swimming with the river, see where it takes you. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it has been, it has been fun. And I also realized that I'm not, I'm not going to be some kind of trail savant <laughs> i've got way too many things to work on this is hard for me now i hope the bug does bite you just so we can play this back in a year and you're like you've got like a seven inch beard and you're all <laughs> trail savant <laughs> yeah smoking marijuana and <laughs> growing my beard so anyway really cool experience though highly recommended and i do think it prepared me for the 50 miler to come it did it did give me both a comfort that I could do what I need to do in August, but also this kind of weird fear and hesitation, which is that, you know, it took me almost eight hours to do 25 miles. Now I have to go 50 <laughs> and it's going to be a dramatically different experience because the terrain isn't as extreme in Squamish. You know, for example, you know, this French race had, I think it was 14 miles that were either, 900 or more feet straight up or straight down which is really insane yeah squamish it's like three total and the biggest climbing uh mile you have in squamish is 850 feet per mile and in france it was 1400 so it's going to be a very different situation but it is kind of intimidating to think about that math so anyway but it was a whole lot of fun and i highly encourage people to to find a new challenge here and there if, if they need to mix things up. The next thing I want to talk about is the Monaco Diamond League meet, which was an awesome experience. Definitely a bucket list experience for me. You know, for those that have been longtime listeners, you know that Monaco and the Diamond League meets are basically the, the major championships of track and field in Europe. You know, they'd be on par with a, with a U.S. Open or a Wimbledon or something in, th in the tennis world. And, you know, they're the biggest meets in the world with the best 
best athletes in the world and in Europe they treat their track and field very very seriously it was kind of interesting in Monaco we were trying to get to the stadium we had rented a car and so we were going to go park and then walk and getting into Monaco was kind of confusing because they have all these tunnels and these roads that kind of like overlap on top of each other through tunnels and over bridges and stuff like that so when you're looking at the map to try to figure out where to go sometimes it's hard to tell whether you go up or down and so we ended up screwing up having to circle back a few times so we got there a little bit later than I wanted and it was like 20 minutes to go before the thing started and the first event was javelin not something people are typically that excited to watch we get to the front to the gate and everybody's trying to get in like it was crazy it was a madhouse it wasn't as organized as maybe you would want to see but also you just had a mad bunch of people that were trying to get there to be in their seats for the javelin the first event to go interesting and then you know we all kind of got in but people were like once you get in people are like rushing around going to the concessions grabbing a heineken they're selling beer under the stadium finding their seats the stadium was sold out and i would say 95 percent of the people were in their seats ready to go for the javelin throw <laughs> and just so different right than it would have been here like here, people would have been like, yeah, whatever, the javelin. If we miss a little bit of that, no big deal. But they wanted to be in their seats ready to go. And then there was javelin and women's high jump. Those were the first two the events that started and then the pole vault. So the field events started first about 30 minutes early and then, or before the track, actual track uh, races started. But people were ready to go in their seats. They wanted to see the whole thing. And then you just had just this electric energy People were into it. They knew what was going on. There's a buzz about the stadium. They would get quiet when it was time. They would get loud whenever something happened. Like if some some guy threw an insane javelin throw, everybody would go nuts about it. And you're like, what? This is so weird for people to be excited and focused on that. But it was so cool. They had dancers and you know music. And the announcer was this. French guy in the middle of the stadium who had a wireless mic and watching him was a basically an experience all to itself because he was just so into it and animated and he had you know these like papers of notes that he was using to call the different events that he would like throw around and he was like moving around like into it he wasn't at a table like you would expect he was like in the middle like watching everything around him happening and like moving around the infield seeing everything and getting into it he's super animated he's speaking in french i have no idea what he's saying but i'm absolutely fascinated just watching the guy because he was clearly like he knew everything that was going on he was so into it he was animated it was like watching you know a good singer like get into a song and you know when they feel it and you feel it too right it was like that but in a foreign language that i didn't understand but i was like i'm with that guy like I want like whatever he's excited about I'm excited about. So that was cool and then you know the whole thing's going off the meet is just perfectly run everything's happening crisply you know one event after another. You know it's like it was two and a half hours start to finish. Everybody stayed until the last pole vault. You know the last event to finish was the pole vault. And everybody stayed till the Till that guy was done. And then after that, they had this crazy fireworks show that just went off the infield. 
like that would rival any Fourth of July fireworks show, and you're just thinking, "Is this safe?" <laughs> but it was awesome. Kids loved it. So it was just a overall just a amazing experience. It would rival to me. The only thing that would rival it in the U.S. would be watching the Olympic trials in Hayward Field, which is a similar experience in some ways, but I still don't even think quite the same. So that was just awesome overall, just a vibe. But then, of course, you had some really cool things happen. You know, the best of the world are competing. You know, for me, the highlights were watching Sydney McLaughlin. She's 19-year-old 400 hurdler. I've talked about her before on the last podcast. She made the last Olympics as a high schooler. She's signed by New Balance. She's the next great American sprinter. And she won the meet or the race at the meet by probably eight meters. She crushed everybody. I mean, it was just a dominant performance. And watching her line up, and I was just really into it. And, it, you know, they get them lined, they start getting them lined up like t- 20 minutes before the event where they, you know, they walk around the track, they get to their little z- their lane, they're getting the blocks set the way they want them. They're doing, you know, all their little warm-ups and stuff, doing some strides. So you, you're just watching them get ready. And watching her, again, it was like, damn, like a 19-year-old kid just out of high school, just looking like in a full stadium, Diamond League meet, biggest, one of the big speeds, you know. And she just turned pro. This is like her second big meet outside of the Olympics just calm cool collected she just looked like no like this was no big deal she had a routine and you could tell like everybody around her even the older athletes kind of keyed off of her too they were like watching what's sydney doing you know and she just like so she's kind of the center of attention too no not bothered at all and just that's just amazing to me and and of course the event itself where she just crushed everybody was also amazing she's a beautiful runner to watch but just that, just that calm, cool, collected approach before. And maybe she's going crazy inside. I don't know. But that's just really impressive to me. Seeing that in person was cool. No, there's a theme with like kind of the the goats or the, che- the you know, the great, you know, the greatest in their sports. There's something, there, there's always this like dominant athlete that has that like tranquil presence. It's almost like uh, a characteristic of some of the best. There's just a. It's not that they don't have doubts or insecurities or nerves or anxiety or any of that. It's just more of a, maybe they just channel it well. Um, but there's something about that that you see in great athletes. Yeah, there's an, and then there's just the aura, right? So that was cool. Watching Ajay Wilson, who's kind of the same thing. She's a little bit older now, but in her mid-20s, she won the 800, has been a dominant, you, you know, she's an American dominant force in the 800. She's a, a bronze medalist from Rio watching her do her thing too where she basically just controlled the race from start to finish ran really fast 157 for the 800 but did it in a way that just made it look effortless and the 800 is one of the hardest races on the track i mean you know typically you're positive splitting you know you're running the first lap faster than the second because your body basically just gets so destroyed (laughs) over two laps and you're just on the edge and she had another athlete right behind her the whole time on the last lap that looked like maybe she could get her if you knew if you didn't know better you you thought maybe that person might come by her on the on the home stretch 
no way. I mean, I knew better because I've seen Audrey Wilson run. But you might think that. But then she just stays calm, just does her thing. Nothing. There's nothing dramatic about it. Just like, just looks like business as usual, running a 157 and winning a Diamond League meet. No big deal <laughs> in her mid-20s. So that was cool to see her just kind of take care of business. Then the, the men's 400 was nuts. They had a false start. And because right after the false start, it was loud as the child, as the crowd kind of, you know, the gun goes off, the crowd energy picks up. The gun went off twice for the false start, but it was a little bit delayed for whatever reason. And so three runners kept going. Oh, man. One of them figured out after about 150 meters that there was no race and stopped. The next one took about 300 meters before he stopped. And then one guy went all the way around and it was a UT athlete. Wearing his Texas gear, burnt orange, Jonathan Jones from Barbados, collegiate, I think he got second in the 400 at NCAAs, his first Diamond League meet, wearing his Texas gear, runs all the way around thinking he's winning the race, gets to the finish line and realizes there was no race. And at that point, you can't turn around and line up again because you just spent, you know, all your energy. So he, he was so annoyed first of all and dejected and they spent a lot of time trying to like talk to him and figure out because he was like i didn't you know i didn't hear the other gun go off and for the false start and eventually he just kind of dejected had to walk off the off the track and not go again and the other guy who went 300 meters also decided not to to go again the guy who went 150 he decided to line up again but ended up getting dead last you know because he expended a little too much energy already yeah so that was just crazy i'd never seen that happen before where the guy just did the whole loop and have it to be a texas athlete was kind of nuts fortunately for him because i was worried that might be his only diamond league meet you know like in between collegiate seasons you you maybe get one chance to go to europe and then you're done turns out he ended up doing the diamond league london and he got second in that race in a barbados national record so he did able he was able to get redemption which is good but that was kind of crazy, just something I've never seen happen before. Is there not someone that like can jump out on the track, like officials, <laughs> like at That's every the turn part that to was wave weird. them off? Or? Like, yeah, I don't understand why somebody didn't like do something, or that why didn't they, you know, keep firing the gun until all the guys stopped? So it was just, just bizarre. And then you know, I could talk about the men's fifteen hundred, which was cool just to see. There's this Norwegian athlete, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. We've talked about him on the show before. He got second in the men's fifteen hundred in a really fast time. Took the lead at one point with basically a lap and a half to go, and kind of made made the race, so to speak. You know, at the end, and eventually was passed by Timothy Chiriot, who's the gold medal winner in Rio. So. Losing to that guy is, you know, there's no shame in that. But again, to see this young kid, basically high school age, I mean, he's he's competing as a pro essentially now. So, but still, high school age kid, and he would say afterwards, he's like, yeah, those guys were going too slow. I wanted a fast meet <laughs> or a fast race, so I just took it. That kind of panache, that kind of confidence on the world stage at that age. Anyway, just really cool to see that. And then the pole vault was just fun to watch. Mondo Duplantis, who we've talked about many times, you know, he's a he was a high schooler here in the U.S. competing at the world level for Sweden. Did a year at LSU, just turned pro, signed with Puma, so he was 
competing in his Puma kit for one of the first times. He got second to this Polish athlete in the pole vault. But he just brings this flair to the event. He's wearing like knee-high socks. He's got this, this I don't know, almost rock star kind of aura about him. And it seems like he's a humble guy, but who's also, but just confident, you know. And watching him compete, and and he was competing against a uh, a French athlete who's world record holder, Livy, you know, Renault Livy Lenny, and and so watching those two guys go head to head with the predominantly French crowd get really into it was pretty cool. So that was fun. I do have to get to one depressing thing about the meet, mm. which may surprise people. I got to see a women's world record in the mile. In they had this. Brave like Gabe Mile to honor Gabe Grunewald, who just died from cancer at 33, which was super cool to see her them honor her in that way. There was a world record in the event for the women's mile. Sifan Hassan ran four minutes and 12 seconds for the mile for a, for a woman. Fastest ever. She runs with the Oregon Project and Alberto Salazar and crew. So to see Salazar celebrating with her in the brave like Gabe mile and and Gabe is a runner who was actually disqualified she won a u.s indoor 3k in 2014 was initially disqualified because she had some contact with salazar the athlete jordan has and so salazar basically bullied the officials into disqualifying her and it wasn't until Hasey herself decided to overrule her coach and withdraw the protest that she was reinstated so it was just kind of bittersweet for me to see Salazar celebrating in the Brave Like Gay Mile with all of the clouds that fly over that group. And Hassan is an athlete who, just because of the affiliation with Salazar and because of some of her really extreme performances, I mean, she's run crazy times for the half recently. She did this world record in the mile, by the way, beating a time that was set by a Russian athlete who everybody believes was probably, you know, doped. So that raises question marks. A week later, she goes and runs a, a European record in the 5K, 1422, just a week after running this world record. So just a lot of things that point to suspicion for mm-hmm. me with her, mostly being the affiliation with Salazar and the Oregon Project. So to see that was just actually for me kind of depressing not only the bittersweet nature of salazar celebrating in the brain like game mile when he had done her wrong before but also just because to me there's a cloud of suspicion over hassan in my mind and I'm, it's just not that interesting to watch people that maybe aren't doing it the right way run fast yeah you, you want to see the world record you want to witness it but then if that dark cloud's going to be invited in, it's like a uh, bittersweet. So unfulfilling and really kind of depressing for me. Everybody's like, Oh, was that, was that cool? And I try to explain my feelings and nobody gets it mm-hmm. <laughs> for the most part because they don't follow the sport like I do. So that's also been kind of frustrating because <laughs> people yeah. not understanding my perspective on it. And look, I don't know if Sivan Hassan is doping or not. I don't know. And I'm, but I'm just telling you, she's not an athlete I root for because of her affiliations and because of some of the su- suspicions I have. So I'm not accusing her of doping. I'm just saying she's not somebody I'm going to get excited about because, because just a big old question. Mark. Yeah. There's a lot of question marks. So anyway, so that was 
we so we had that so I, we actually went to the diamond league on my birthday which was awesome got to sp- you know see that with the family and then we did a little post track meat chocolate cake with candles back at our airbnb with the kids which was awesome and then we were back to paris and back home so that pretty much wrapped the trip with also a lot of just other cool things we went to switzerland italy got to see a lot of things although uh, you know we saw a lot in 15 days i don't think it was overkill i felt like we we managed it pretty well just had an amazing experience got to show the kids a new world in europe as as well as also also these amazing experiences at the meets so really really fun trip that's honestly hard to put it in words yeah no i'm happy for you it's pretty pretty great especially surrounding your birthday it's wild though any one of those three that we talked about could have been an anchor in and of itself um (laughs) it sounds like you had three huge anchors on this trip um yeah glad you had that yeah so a lot of fun i mean for me the big takeaways if i were to quickly summarize one for me personally experiences are better than things all day long and I particularly like watching things that inspire me so I don't know if other people are into that but it's not as hard as you would think to go watch some of these things in person so I would just encourage you to figure it out and I know that for some people there's a you know a cost associated that with that that's difficult so I get that part but if you have the means you know go see something like this instead of buying that cool car you know to me that's worth it all day long uh you know, the pressure point about pressure fueling performance, watching the national team deliver the way they did, watching some of these athletes at the track meet deliver the way they did. You know, to me, that's something I'm going to internalize for my own pressure filled moments with, you know, yeah, smaller bits of pressure. But for me, sometimes they feel the same and I feel like we can all take that and use it. And then the other thing is just, you know, finding those new challenges and embracing the journey through them, as Paul would say. Mm-hmm is also, I think, something we have to do as runners, not only to mix it up at times, but also to work on new skills. You know, I feel, personally, I feel like everything I'm doing to prep for this trail race, even if it's the last 50 miler I do, is going to help me when I go back to the roads. And so it's not, it's not that I'm losing time getting faster for the marathons. I feel like I'm getting better in ways that maybe were blind spots before that will help me when I go back to the roads. So I also encourage people just to find those ways to challenge themselves, to mix it up, to work new skills so that, so that you can get better at whatever you want to get better at. Yeah. I mean, that's applicable to running and life for sure. So you brought a lot of good stuff home. We'll wrap it there. Any final thoughts from you, James, before we shut this down? No, just what I said. I think it's applicable to both life and running. So there's a lot of meat in that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being my foil so that it wasn't just me solo into a mic. Hopefully, that broke it up for the audience a little bit. So thanks as always for joining me and thanks to the audience for humoring me as I spent almost 90 minutes talking about my trip. Hopefully there were little nuggets in there that you can take away and we'll get back to our regular scheduled programming on the next episode. So thanks again. This has been episode 141 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.